How's everyone doing this morning? Awesome. So my name is Nick, and I have the honor this morning to be able to open God's Word with you. And so we're going to jump right into things, if that's okay with you guys. Now, I say that, and my wife is here. I, I said it earlier. Um, whenever I say anything like that, she looks at me like, yeah, right. Um, because I am famous for beating around the bush, especially when it comes to storytelling and that kind of thing. She has this look that she gives me like, here we go again. And then I usually lean into it then and make it take as long as possible to get to the point. I won't do that today. Um, but instead of jumping right in, are we good to do a little bit of bush beating first? You don't sound like it, but I wasn't waiting for your permission, so we're going to jump in. So uh, one of my favorite things to do with my son Micah um, at nighttime is for us to read stories. Um, I say stories, we usually actually read books. So we've gone through many series um, already. And I don't even know when we started it, um, but it's been a while. And we've read things like C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia um, all the way through. And uh, other books, other series that have been really, really good, and in and, and my opinion, like on parallel, even with C.S. Lewis's work. And then we've read some books that don't measure up to that necessarily, but are fun, um, and that we read as well. But it's gotten to the point now that if we have to miss it, um, Micah usually gets kind of distraught. Um, he plans a lot of times his nights around us reading. And if I'm going to be honest, um, I get a little sad too if we have to miss it. Um, but it's one of our, our favorite things to do together. And one of the reasons why, I think, is because in those type of stories that are really um, meaningful and deep, um, it draws us to this place that kind of goes beyond what we physically experience, right? Engages our imagination, but it does more than that. It, it does more than give us an opportunity to escape. It actually gives us the opportunity to long for more. And so when I find myself reading those stories, what I find is that I want something deeper. Now, not every story we read gets to that point, but for those that do, um, I, I came across this prayer. Um, it's called Prayer of Lament for the Loss of a Good Book. Sounds weird, I know. But I really, like, it really impacted me, um, and I, I feel like these words are, are kind of what I wish if I could put it so eloquently, um, how I feel about a good book. This is what Douglas McKelvey says. He says, I'm stirred and saddened. This is his prayer. O Lord, in coming to this tale's end, to bid farewell and return now from my sojourn in that storied place where longings for something more than life I lead were weakened. Let it do its work in me, inviting me to dig beneath these fresh stirred longings to see that their roots are not at last a longing for places depicted in these pages, but are in truth profound and holy wounds, yearnings for a lost garden and a more perfect city where justice and righteousness are restored and harms are healed and losses redeemed and love proved true and earth and heaven reconciled. When we engage in a story that makes us long for more, I truly believe that what we're longing for is what God has planted in us already. That place where it will be all made right with God. And it's the unexpected ways that we find ourselves drawn back to this truth, this seed that God has planted in us when he created us. The book series that Mike and I are reading now um, it's not one of those stories, though. It's one of those fun ones. We picked it because we like dragons, and so it's all about dragons. In fact, of course, it's about dragons that are personified. They talk, they have feelings, 
and, and all this good stuff. And the story is told from the perspective of the dragons. Now, what's happening in this book, at least so far, we've only made it two books in, and it's a large series, so I'm not quite sure where it's going. But what's happening so far is there's this war going on, dragon worldwide, that these little group of dragons who are like kid dragons are supposed to be destined to stop. And so they're trying to stop this war and they don't know what they're doing. And in this storyline, we, of course, we're only two books in, um, we come across this secondary character, which I even hesitate to call them secondary because we've only come across them a couple times and almost every time we come across them, they get eaten um, by the dragons. But uh, what we find out, they're called scavengers. That's what the, the dragons call them. And they view them as prey, but really not even worth it. But what the story tells us is there's one thing that dragons and scavengers have in common. And that's their love for treasure. It's another thing that we, uh, by description, we, it never says it, but we understand that these scavengers are actually humans. And the one thing they have in common is that they love treasure. So much so that the dragons will defend them, anyone, like defend their treasure against anyone, even their family. And the humans, although teeny tiny compared to the dragons and weak by the story's description, will take on dragons just to steal their treasure. In fact, the whole reason why the story is, is happening in the first place is because humans came and took treasure and started the war that the dragons are in now. But in this story that I thought that we could just kind of get lost in and use our imaginations just because we like dragons, I find myself being drawn by God to this idea. Now, I don't know if this writer had any intention of, of making a deep connection here. I don't know that this writer had any intention of making a commentary on anything real world. But what I keep getting drawn back to is this idea of treasure. Because the dragons and the humans will do anything to seek and find and keep treasure. And I think that's a perfect picture of what worship is. Worship at its core is what we treasure. And the devotion and ferocity with which we seek that treasure. So we're in a series called We Are. And in this series, we're diving into the foundations of who we are as a church. Um, a couple weeks ago, Ben started the series with the foundation that we are people, and we should be people who love like Jesus. And then last week, Virgil talked about how, as a church, we should be people of God's word, people of the Bible. And if you're looking for any of those, because you're like, wait a minute, I missed that one, um, you can go to fortchristian.org slash latest messages to find those and catch up at your leisure, both in video and um, audio form, in case you like to do it that way. But this week, you can probably already guess, and because I've already given, I've, I've tipped my hand, I know, and if it didn't help, the fact that I'm the worship pastor probably also tips my hand. Um, but I get the opportunity to speak about the foundation that we experience as a church, but really Jesus' church throughout the world experiences, which is that as a church, we are people of worship. Now that word worship is a loaded word, isn't it? 
It's loaded because we use it to describe many things in, in our church experience. So if you are used to church, you're probably used to throwing that word around. If you're not, maybe it's not a word you use often. But that word, I think, demands a definition. But what we use it as is we use it to describe the very thing we're doing right now. Our gathering right now, we call it a worship gathering. Um, the songs we sing or we, that we just sang, um, even the fact that there's a whole genre of music, um, that is titled worship music. It's a word that we use to describe several things, and usually it's surrounding the things of God. But our worship is so much more important than just being defined by those things alone. In fact, it's essential to all that we are. Now, we could spend our time in a lot of places today. We could dive into the practical ways that we worship, and um, I don't know about Ben and Virgil, but the problem I had in tackling this topic was not coming up with a topic to tackle, but the fact that it's so deep and we could go so many places that 30 minutes doesn't cover it. So instead of going many different directions today, what I like to do is I like to drill down to the core of worship. Because honestly, to say that we're people of worship and that as a church that we should be people of worship doesn't really say much. Because all humans worship. And regardless of what time you grow up in, what religion you grow up in or don't, what place in the world and location you find yourself in, any of those things, doesn't matter because every human being that ever has been or ever will be is a person who worships. I mentioned that longing that a good book or story creates within us. And I think it goes back to the fact that God, when he created us, planted it within us. This longing for something deeper. He's literally created us with his breath in our lungs. That's how he made us. And even so, because of sin, when sin rules in our hearts, and it does from birth, there begins to be this war within. This war between the things of God that he planted in us and what sin brings about in our life. A war that looks at what we seek in life and says, there has to be more. And then that feeling drives us to try to find it. That striving to find purpose and meaning is worship. But because of sin, our worship is naturally diverted to places that it shouldn't go. To things that it shouldn't go to. And all those things don't deserve it. Because the one who put it there in the first place deserves it. As humans, we have been wired to be people of worship, but that begs a definition, right? So what is worship at its core? And to, to define that, what do we always do? We go to the dictionary, right? Because many, many people through a lot of time have put a lot of effort into defining things within our language. And so the dictionary defines worship as this way. To honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. That's not a bad definition, right? It's better than anything that I probably could have actually come up with had I just tried to do it from scratch. And who am I to argue with the dictionary because so many people smarter than I have put it together. But I think we can do a little better in our context. And not only can we do better, but in doing better, I think we can get simpler. But just remember that because we get simpler doesn't mean it makes it easier. Here's something we're going to find out about worship. We can never ascribe the worship 
to God that he deserves apart from understanding the truth of who God is and how he has revealed himself through Jesus in his word. So last week, Virgil established the foundation that as a church, we are people of God's word. And we cannot be people of worship apart from being people of God's word. Because in God's word, he reveals who he is and how he's made us. So we have to be people of God's word to be people of worship. So here we go. Worship, simply put, is giving worth to something or someone. It's a simple definition. And we can probably flesh that out a little bit to say that not only is it giving worth to something or someone, but it's that something or someone that we find that has, that we give the most worth to. The thing that we define as most valuable, that thing we treasure. I said earlier that being people of worship doesn't really distinguish us from anyone who's ever lived because every human being and everything they do as they strive throughout their day, day in, day out, week in, week out, they are really truly worshiping in the things that they seek and the things that they, that they strive for. Specifically, worship is what you treasure, what you hold most valuable. We said earlier that worship at its core is what we treasure and the devotion and ferocity with which we seek that treasure. So let's pray together. Jesus, there's a lot at stake this morning. Our souls are at stake this morning. And that isn't something that, that we just say lightly or something that we say dramatically to prove a point, Lord. Right now, if we're honest from our hearts, we have to say that there's so many things that we seek to find meaning in. So many things that we allow to take the place of you as we seek to find meaning and purpose in life. There's so many things we give our lives to that we seek and sacrifice to build because we identify those things, Lord, as something that will bring meaning and fulfillment. Jesus, we seek, we bank those things away because we are allowing our longing for you to be replaced with something that we think can fill a void that we have and emptiness that we have. Help us to listen to your words today, Jesus. Help us to act on them. Because today we're here to do one thing, really. And that's to answer one question. Do we treasure you, Jesus, above all else? And may you help us to have no other treasure than you today. To your name pray. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you today, um, whether on your phone or physical Bible. Um, we're going to be in the book of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 12. And if you're looking for that, um, it's more or less in the middle of your Bible, if you have a physical one, in the beginning of the New Testament. And um, if you have your phone, well, you probably can search it pretty quickly and find it there. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 12. And in this account, what we have is we have Jesus beginning this conversation with a man who actually approached Jesus. And because of this conversation... Jesus launches into a teaching. And so we're going to follow along with that. But to do so, I want to give the punchline first. I want to give Jesus his punchline first. So I want to work backwards just really quickly. Um, so in verse 34 of chapter 12 in Luke, this is what Jesus says. Wherever, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart 
will also be. So let's begin there with the end in mind, so that throughout this whole teaching, we can turn that over in our minds and in our hearts to really pull out what Jesus is speaking to here. Because in his content, we we can kind of get lost if we're not careful. Not lost in bad things, lost in good things. But we might miss the the total meaning of where Jesus is going if we don't keep that in mind. And that will make us people of worship. Truly people who worship God. So in Luke chapter 12, we're going to start now in verse 13, back to the top. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. By the way, I didn't say that we're going to be in the ESV version for just a little bit now before we switch. Um, So that word may not be a word we normally use. And really just a simple definition of it is, is greed. So he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is approached by this man who is having family problems and money problems. And he's looking to Jesus to be the one to solve that problem. And Jesus kind of confronts that right off the bat. But what we're going to see is he turns it into an opportunity to teach on that problem, but also something much, much greater. Jesus is going to give us a perspective of what worship is and help us to ensure that we are people who worship God. And the byproduct of this is that we're going to be able to see that what we have, our possessions, really should be something we hold on to a little more lightly. Basically, Jesus says here to this man, why are you dragging me into your family stuff? Do I look like a judge to you? which if you know anything about Jesus' teachings, when he responds to someone's question, he's usually responding with a very loaded answer. And in this case, he's responding in a very loaded way. But what Jesus is basically saying is that, but since you ask me, I'm going to tell you. And so Jesus takes this real life interaction and he uses it as a basis to address the heart of worship with the teaching. Jesus says, be careful to not let greed and desire and pursuit of anything control you. He says, life and relationship with God is not about the wealth you possess. It's not about the things that you have. In fact, that does not mark your standing with God. It's not about those things. So then Jesus uses this opportunity to teach on money and possessions. But his teaching is not what it seems at face value. Jesus is the master of this. He, he teaches towards something that's good, something that's needed, that addresses a, like a, a felt need, something that's right in front of the person who asked the question. But there's so much more to what Jesus is saying here. And he uses a teaching technique called a parable, which is really just a story. And Jesus is a master, masterful storyteller. He doesn't beat around the bush to get to a point like I do. He, he like purposely gets to a point and then dives even further into a different one. But this parable technique is really just an earthly example, an earthly story that proves a a meaning that's deeper, that's heavenly, and that's about a relationship with God. And so he uses this technique here with this story. And he does so by tackling money and possessions. But he doesn't just teach to that end. Rather, he shows us that nothing we ever seek 
can compare with a right relationship with God. And so in this talking about money, can you, can you gauge like his audience and how they're feeling? They're probably feeling a little uncomfortable at this point and went somewhere where they weren't expecting. They just wanted an answer, and here we go. And maybe we can feel a little bit of that too today. But see, Jesus' question to that man was mostly rhetorical and was loaded with meaning because beyond what the man could comprehend, even though Jesus said, what do I look like to you, a, a judge? Jesus is actually the judge of all the world, of all the universe. And so as Jesus speaks, we would be good to listen to what he says. In verse 16, this is what he says, And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So what's happening here? Because at face value, it seems like what we have is a description of the American dream, right? To work hard, to save a lot, and then to be able to enjoy it. And he's not just going to enjoy it, but he's built up a ton of wealth, and he's about to really start the party. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, we encounter this example of a man who has plenty in the way of possessions. And so he has a choice because of his possessions. Now, we may think the choice was what kind of barn and what style to build it in. No, his choice was not that he built something to hold everything he has. His choice was, do I keep it for myself or do I share the wealth that I've been blessed with? And in this instance, what this person does is he chooses to keep it for himself. See, in Jewish society with, with Jesus' original audience, they had already built closely held beliefs about blessings and physical blessings and what that meant in right standing with God. Physical blessing was considered to be a sign that you were in God's favor. So much so that Jesus' audience had a hard time listening to what he was actually saying because all they could see was what they saw at face value which was this guy was a good guy and God really loved him. That's what they saw because of his status. And their ability to hear the truth that Jesus was teaching was messed up because of their worldview and how their worldview skewed what Jesus was saying. So let's be careful today that, you know, almost 2,000 years later, we have a different worldview. Let's be careful that our worldview does not do the same thing in skewing Jesus' words today. But Jewish people also had strict rules around eating and drinking. And that's what this guy was about to do, right? Which sounds good to me because I love food and I love to, to eat a lot of food. And so the fact that he was looking to do that and that was like, in his mind, his rest of his life was he was going to enjoy it. I'm all about that. But the Jewish people had really strict ways that they dealt with food and that with, when they dealt with blessing. And so um, when it came to food, they, they especially expressed um, their desire for God and, and also joined his blessing with feasts. They set aside feasting to be a mark of God's goodness. But they did it particularly at particular times. Um, and in Deuteronomy chapter 28, 
Um, we see that God says this surrounding um, physical things and blessings, um, even when it comes to, to the place of food. Because when he establishes his relationship with the people of Israel, he says this through Moses. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully keep all his commands that I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the world. You will experience all these blessings if you obey the Lord your God. Your towns and your fields will be blessed. Your children and your crops will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboard will be blessed. Wherever you go and whatever you do, you will be blessed. So Jesus' audience doesn't hear anything else. They assume that this man is in fact blessed and favored by God. To put that in today's terms, it might accompany a post with hashtag blessed. In verse 19, we see that this, this rich farmer addresses himself. Now you know when someone starts talking to themselves that things are going to get weird. And evidently this guy, I, I guess he doesn't have anything else or anyone else to talk to, which is probably pretty indicative of the situation he finds himself in and what he lives for, and that he lives for himself. But he addresses himself and he says, what am I going to do with all this stuff? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to knock everything down. I'm going to build something bigger, and I'm going to keep it all for myself, and I'm going to enjoy it. So he was about to launch into this party that would, would end all parties, but it was aimed for him and him alone. And here's where the problem began to set in for Jesus' audience, which is kind of the, the flip in the storyline, where they may begin to track with the fact that there's something wrong with this. Because in Jewish culture, feasting was definitely a thing they did, but not at the expense of those around them who were without. And so the Jewish people, when they feasted to, to celebrate God's blessing, they would always provide for those who had nothing. And in this case, this man totally misses it and totally ignores it. There's also a suggestion that the phrase he uses here, eat, drink, be merry, was viewed by the Jewish people as an attitude of curse. That is that if that was your attitude in life, that you were only worried about your pleasures and you could not care less for anyone else, that you were heaping God's judgment upon you. In fact, if you want a little bit more reading, read the, um, in the book of Isaiah chapter 22. Um, 13 and 14 says just this very thing. And that's what the people of Israel built this idea off of. So this rich farmer who seems to be blessed by God decides to go against God's commands for enjoying blessing and keep it all for himself. And in doing so, he was really just saying he was the one who worked hard for this and he deserved to enjoy it. He strived for his treasure and it was his to enjoy is what he was saying. And in doing so, he cut off God from the equation. He took what was supposed to be a gift from God and claimed it as his creation, his hard work. It's interesting to me, because I don't know about you, but there's times, just admitting it out loud, that I may talk to myself. Um, usually not out loud, though. Usually in my head. But when I talk to myself, I don't know about you, but I don't talk to myself this way. And it's weird to me that this man, when he addresses himself, he doesn't say, his name, he addresses himself as soul, which I think is Jesus's way of really diving down to the issue at the core here, is that this man has put his identity, really his eternity, in having a lot and enjoying it, working hard for it and keeping it to himself. And because of that, 
His life choice comes at a heavy price. Jesus says in verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here's where we're going to switch to the NLT. Um, it, It says it this way in verse 21. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And so here is where we see this idea of worship coming into the realm of what we treasure and what we hold valuable. This rich farmer allowed what God had given him to become what he valued and treasured the most in the world. His pleasure was his treasure. And because of his decision, it cost him his soul. Let's let that sink in for a second. I don't know about you. Maybe some of you have an Apple Watch. I say it because my watch sometimes sends me these notifications that remind me to breathe. Anybody's watch do that? Okay, so if you have one or your watch of any kind does that, you might know what I'm talking about. If you don't, you might say that's a weird thing because you really don't need a reminder to breathe. Well, in God's word in the Psalms, we see a word that's used 71 times. And it's this word, salah, which most people, most, most writers think that what it really is, is it's a musical term um, for pause. Basically, it's a musical interlude. In the songs we sing, even on Sunday mornings, we have musical interludes. And they're not there for fluff or not there just to be, but they're usually there to give pause and to allow time of reflection on what we're singing. So in the same way, God's word gives opportunity for pause. So like a watch, like God's word, I want us to have a second to pause and think about this. His pleasure was his treasure, and it cost him his relationship with God and his soul. What we treasure directly affects our relationship with God. Let's think about that. Thirty seconds feels like an eternity when you're silent, doesn't it? I guarantee you it felt longer for me than it did for you. (laughs) But that 30 seconds gives us a little time just to think about it. But what it also makes me mindful of is the things that we treasure, we spend a whole lot of time on, don't we? That 30 seconds felt like a long time to think about one thing because we were quiet. But if we're honest with ourselves, the things that we seek after in life, the things we invest our time in, that we invest our money in, those things we invest a whole lot of time in. And if 30 seconds feels like a long time, imagine the amount of time we actually invest in things that aren't really worth our investment or not our total energy. And that's what Jesus is trying to draw our attention to. Because the things that we treasure are the things that we worship. So let's follow Jesus where he ends out. In verse 22, he says, Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? 
And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? And don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your Father already knows your needs. And so basically what Jesus is saying here, in, in that verse 30, he, that word that the NLT translates dominate, um, in the Greek means to search for intensively, to demand, or to crave. So really this, this thing that's all-encompassing to us, that pushes us forward, that causes us to get up in the morning. Um, Jesus says that the world around us, who doesn't look toward or treasure the things of God, they give their all, they demand their life of these things that they seek and desire. But he says, your father already knows your needs. In this passage, in eight verses, Jesus uses the word worry five times. And I don't know about you, but I tend to be a person that if I'm not careful, I can lean into worry. And if there's not something to worry about, I can make something to worry about. But what that tells me, if I'm honest with myself, it shows me a really good picture into what I'm treasuring. Because what I worry about when it's not Jesus is a good indicator of what I treasure and really what I'm giving worship to. Plain and simple, worry runs in the opposite direction of worship. It runs in the opposite direction of worshiping God. It distracts us from treasuring Jesus and siphons the worship that God really deserves. So Jesus is making a point for us to see that worry runs counter to our relationship with God and therefore redirects our worship to something else that doesn't deserve it. He continues on in verse 31. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Did you catch that? It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. There's not much better if we really think about it. Because what Jesus is saying here is that if we seek the things of God, if we treasure the things of God, then not only will God give us the blessing that the rest of the world is seeking after and giving their life for, but those things are secondary to what God really wants to give us. In fact, they're not even secondary. They're like crumbs. They don't even really matter. God throws that in as like a, a complimentary gift. Because what God really wants to give us, Jesus says the Father, it gives him great happiness to give you the kingdom. Meaning God wants to give us all that he is and all that is his blessing. So not only will God give you the things that the world is ferociously striving for, but he's going to give you all that belongs to him when you treasure his kingdom. When we treasure the kingdom of God, we inherit the kingdom of God and all of its blessings.
So in this, Jesus is drawing the original conversation back to a conclusion. That man asked the question, can you tell my brother to split the inheritance with me? And what Jesus is actually taking the opportunity to say is that you're worried about a little bit and getting what's owed you. And actually what God wants to give you is everything. You don't have to worry about a little bit. You don't have to worry about getting what's yours because God wants to give you everything. So stop pouring your life into something that's less. Stop pouring yourself into something that's always going to leave you empty and leave you wanting more. Stop worshiping things that cost you your soul. Treasure God and his kingdom. Then everything that is God's, he will give to you. Because in Jesus, we are heirs of the kingdom of God. And now this ending part that Jesus wraps up on becomes a mark of living for the kingdom of God and not our own kingdom. Jesus says this, verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Isaac Watts, a great hymn writer of the 17th and 18th century, so a long time ago, um, said this about our heart's relationship to worship. He said, The great God values not the service of men if the heart be not in it. The Lord sees and judges the heart. He has no regard to outward forms of worship if there be no inward adoration, if no devout affection can be employed therein. It is therefore a matter of infinite importance to have the whole heart engaged steadfastly for God. Jesus tells us in Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven, that in order to worship God the Father, that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. What we treasure is where our heart is. What we treasure is what we worship, because where our heart is, is where our devotion belongs. We're people of worship regardless of whether we even want to be. But the real question is, are we worshiping the God who is everything, who gives us everything, who wants to give us his kingdom? Or are we worshiping something that is at least a byproduct of God's goodness, but probably more like just leftovers and scraps? So I want to leave you with this. How do we know what we're really treasuring? What or who it is that we're really worshiping. Bob Coughlin says this in his book, Worship Matters. He says, how do I know what I love the most? By looking at my life outside of a Sunday morning. What do I enjoy the most? What do I spend the most time doing? Where does my mind drift to when I don't have anything else to do? What am I passionate about? What do I spend my money on? What makes me angry when I don't get it? What do I feel depressed without? What do I fear losing the most? Our answers to those questions will lead us straight to the God or gods we love and worship. Jesus says that worship is what we treasure in our hearts. 
He also says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Apart from treasuring Jesus, we're worshiping the wrong things. So with all that is in us, let's make sure Jesus is our treasure today. Because that is what makes us people of worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your word is a gift to us because it shows us the desires of our hearts and points us to you. And so today, Jesus, as we spend time in our life applying your word to our lives, as we take into account what it is that we treasure, what it is that we value most in life, Jesus, will we walk away from this moment right now identifying that thing or those things and, and giving them up to you and replacing those things with treasuring you, Jesus. May we truly be able to say that all we have, all we desire, all we need is you, Jesus, and you alone. So in your name we pray, amen.